continuing in our study of prayer, we're looking at the epistle of the Apostle Paul to the Ephesians. You'll find your place there, Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to begin the reading there in the first verse of Ephesians chapter 1. Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by the will of God, to the saints which are at Ephesus, and to the faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace be to you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. This begins the introduction to a a prayer that Paul is praying on behalf of the Ephesians. He tells them in great detail exactly what he's asking the Lord for on their behalf. But I want us just to lift this third verse and see the beginning here and the root, the foundation of all true prayer. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who hath blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places. Gratitude is one of the keystone graces of a heart that has been regenerated by the Spirit of God. Our Lord notices ingratitude and he points it out to his disciples in Luke chapter 17, verse 17. And there you'll recall he came across this group of men, ten of them, who were leprous. They were in a very pitiful condition and had no hope of ever changing their circumstance. By his graciousness and loving kindness, he touched them and healed them of that horrible, dreaded disease. One of them, when he saw that he was healed, turned back and with a loud voice glorified God and fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. We would think that that would be an appropriate response to someone who's just been delivered from a death sentence one whose body was racked with one of the most loathsome disease, if not the most loathsome disease of all time. Jesus remarked when this one leper came back, and he said, were there not ten cleansed? But where are the nine? What a question. Where are the others? Where is their gratitude? Where is their thankfulness? They are not found that return to give the glory to God, save this stranger. In other words, he was a Samaritan. One, the others, obviously were Jewish people, grounded in the word of God, and knew the appropriate response. And yet, this one who they considered a heathen would not have anything to do with him. This, their common uh, malady was that they were all leprous. The Jews would never associate with a Samaritan except... This disease, as death, levels all barriers and divides, and they had a a thing in common. It was called death. One returned, and it was this Samaritan. Here in Ephesians chapter 1, we have a pattern preserved for us out of the Apostle Paul's prayer life. One thing we note about him is that he certainly was a man of prayer, mighty in prayer. And we long to learn to grow in the school of prayer and to grow in this grace and this spiritual privilege and duty. And here we have outlined for us the pattern from Paul, especially of what he includes in his praying. And this serves as a wonderful example and inspiration for us in our own prayer lives. First of all, he begins 
as our Lord teaches in the model prayer, we often call it the, the Lord's Prayer, but actually it was for his disciples. We should probably call it the disciples' prayer. He begins with praise, and he teaches us to do the same. What shall we say to these things? The, the, the Apostle Paul uh, was, was telling us here, when he was looking at the Ephesians and all the, the wonderful, gracious things that God had done, he begins there with this, this uh, if you will, doxology of praise. Praise is the oil that greases the cogs in the engine of prayer. And gratitude then must be the fuel. Ephesians is a remarkable book. The chief New Testament book that reveals to us the open treasury of the everlasting covenant. God's plan and purpose through the ages. His determined design for the salvation of his people. We're truly transported into the heavenlies as we read this epistle. Paul is in awe as he opens up this treasure chest and begins to bring out the jewels of God's grace. But before bringing out these jewels and precious things from God's treasure chest of blessing, Paul bows and praises God. True praise is prayer. And true prayer will always be filled with heartfelt praise. As Paul contemplates the glorious truths that he's about to unpack, he reveals to the Ephesians and to us, he's awed at God's electing love and his free grace. He's filled with gratitude, which is the highest form of praise. It is no proud heart that praises God. It is no one who thinks they have arrived in this matter of growing in grace. The Pharisee at the temple was not praising God, was he? He was telling God how wonderful he was and how grateful God ought to be to have him while the man whose prayer was heard was overwhelmed by his sin and crying out for mercy with a heart of gratitude to one who would do such. When we submit ourselves to the Lordship of Jesus Christ, we can sing what Jehoiakim Neander wrote, Praise to the Lord who o'er all things so wondrously reigneth, shelters thee under his wings, yea, so gently sustaineth. Hast thou not seen how thy desires all have been granted in what he ordaineth? Think of it. Paul reminds us as, as believers that we're blessed with how many spiritual blessings? He tells us here in verse 3, look, all spiritual blessings. We have an exalted place in the heavenlies, in Christ. And so we're duty-bound to praise the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But, but what does that mean? He says, blessed be God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. How can we, earthlings, how can we redeem sinners, earthbound and mired in this world even though we're saved? We know that positionally and spiritually we're seated in the heavenlies, but... How is it that we can bless God? And what does that mean? In what manner is this done, <clears throat> this blessing God? For one thing, we know from the precept here that blessing the Lord involves prayer. Psalm 34, verse 1, I will bless the Lord at all times. His praise shall continually be in my mouth. Please don't separate praise from prayer or prayer from praise. Our singing are prayers. We're telling what the Lord has done. We're declaring, and are, are not our very songs, are, don't they express the desires of our heart, the, the words that even borrowing from the songwriter. And so prayer is praise. 
Psalm 63, verse 4, Thus will I bless thee while I live. I will lift up my hands in thy name. The lifting up of hands in the Scripture is always related to prayer. It is synonymous with prayer. 1 Timothy 2.8 instructs us, I will therefore that men pray everywhere, lifting up holy hands without wrath or doubting. And we see this throughout the the record, the biblical record of, of lifting up our hands in prayer before the Lord. Psalm 134 tells us, lift up your heads, hands in the sanctuary and bless the Lord. And so to bless the Lord is to worship Him, expressing your thanks, your love for Him, your, your gratitude, your are, are engaging and recognizing His exalted person and His place. You're recognizing that every good and perfect gift comes from His hand. Isn't that something to praise Him for? True prayer always includes... Repentance of sin before the throne of grace. Thanking Him that, re- that forgiveness is necessary. No one who repents who does not think that God will forgive. And so our very repentance is praise. When we ask Him, we come for cleansing and remind Him that He said, Come and I will cleanse you. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just. That very process, uh, that of repentance of sin is praise. And then... Uh, True prayer always includes not only repentance, but presenting our needs before the Father. This is not just some recital or some poetic thing that we go through. We have real needs here tonight. Your heart, your family, your uh, corner of the vineyard, our church here. We have so many needs that need to be presented to the throne of grace that only God can answer. Only He can give. We prayed from the beginning. And on your prayer bulletin, you'll see there, Wilt thou not revive us again? Well, we can't revive each other. We can encourage each other. We can pray for each other. But only God can revive us. And so we come asking Him to do what He alone can do. And then not only does true prayer always include repentance and presenting our needs before the Father and praising Him for who He is. Paul is instructing us here in how to pray and beginning with adoring God the Father. Notice the the process here and the, 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 the steps that he takes. In Jesus' model prayer given in response to his disciples' request to teach us to pray, how does he begin? He says, pray like this. Our Father starts with God the Father, which art in heaven. Hallowed be thy name. Praise be your name. Set apart be your name. Sanctified be your name. Blessed be your name. Paul declares in Romans chapter 1, verse 25, that this blessing God, if you will, is setting him apart from all others. There's none who has the affection of our heart that he has. There's none that has the allegiance of our heart save God the Father. It is a position reserved for himself alone. Cast down every idol. Cast out every snare we sing. There he declares the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. Psalm 145 verse 10 declares, All thy works shall praise thee. We sang this last Lord's Day. All thy works with joy surround thee. Earth and heaven reflect thy rays. Stars and angels sing around thee, center of unbroken praise. The stars are doing their part, aren't they? The sun rose this morning and sat this evening. The moon took its place, all in praise to their creator. The stars of heaven, the angels of heaven are praising him. We know that, incessantly singing their praises. The only ones we have to prime and pump and beg to praise him are us who should have the loudest praise of all those who have been redeemed by free grace. 
Well, here the apostle is praising God the Father for all he is and all that he does, but also for the great measureless spiritual riches, the gifts, the blessings of his grace. He begins to enumerate these spiritual blessings beginning in verse 4 and following, and we're going to look at those things in future studies, but he says they're according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world. Now, he's praying for the Ephesians, and he begins with this great, great mystery that we cannot begin to understand how that God chose us as his own. While David, with David in Psalm 103, verse 1, we declare, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me, bless his holy name. Now, notice particularly how Paul addresses him here in verse 3. He addresses him with a particular title. And you can read through Ephesians and these prayers and overlook uh, even the article, the, before God. We don't often see that, but we do see that here. And it's a very particular point that Paul is trying to get across. He says, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is a title that Paul is calling to our attention. Here is the great God, the Father who devised salvation's plan. 1 Peter 1 verse 3 says, Blessed be the God, again you see the same title, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy hath begotten us, or caused us to be alive spiritually, again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. This forms then the foundation of our confidence. How is it that we came tonight to this prayer meeting to make our request known before the throne of grace? We have a sure confidence, don't we? Our confidence is in the God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we come with this assurance in in being able to come to him and to bring all of our other petitions because of the, the, the salvation that he's provided. We are joined to God the Father, not by our birth. He owns us as his creatures by our birth. But it took a regeneration, a conversion, a second birth to make us his children. How is it that we're joined to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ? By the work of our Savior. He's the one that has caused us to be adopted and placed into the family of God. We're joined to God the Father because of the gracious, sacrificial work of God the Son. God who spared not his own Son, but delivered him up for us all. That's the foundation of our praying tonight. Don't ever forget the reason that you're here is that the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ devised salvation's plan and God the Son willingly came and has allowed us and made us worthy and able to come. And because of that redemptive sacrifice, we have access to Him through Christ and by the Spirit. Now, the article the there in verse 3, the God always speaks of Him and you need to note this in your other studies because you'll see this title in other places, as we mentioned in First Peter and other places. When you see the determinant article, the, before God the Father, it always speaks of him as the covenant-making God. In Genesis 9, verse 26, and you'll see it throughout the Scriptures, Noah refers to the Lord God of Shem. And through Shem, God's covenant with Noah that he enumerated there would be accomplished through Shem. In Exodus chapter 3, verse 6, speaks of his title as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. 
How is it that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob? He made the Abrahamic covenant. He's a covenant-making God. And all the blessings that Abraham and Isaac and Jacob enjoy and the Jews enjoyed flowed from the covenant-making God. Jeremiah 16, verse 14, our Lord prophesies, Therefore, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that it shall no more be said, The Lord liveth that brought up the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt. Verse, chapter 31 and verse 31 of Jeremiah, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this covenant shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. Well, what a promise that is. The covenant-making God is the God that, that Paul is praising here and he has reason to do that. It's as if after the work of our Savior at Calvary, that God the Father is announcing, I will now own, be, now from this point on, be known as the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is the basis of our relationship with Him. This is the covenant title of God, His electing title. He is eternally the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is the eternal Son who took on flesh for our sake. On the cross, our Savior cried out, My God, my God. In John 20, verse 17, he refers to the Father as His God. Again, this speaks of God the Son submitting to the ancient plan ordained in eternity past by the Godhead to save the lost. And we, we've studied that. This submitting to the plan of the Godhead did not lessen His deity, did not take anything away from His, his eternal sonship. And yet this submission there is seen as he calls out my God submitting himself to the plan of the father in Isaiah verse 40 chapter 42 verse 5 thus saith the Lord God the Lord I the Lord have called thee and will keep thee and will give thee for a covenant of the people for a light of the Gentiles he's speaking of giving his son this covenant that God has made with this people of eternal salvation Oh, praise God for this covenant. And here Paul, in his prayer to the Ephesians, when he begins in this beautiful prayer, he begins with this in the, enumerating the rich spiritual blessings that we enjoy. He begins with praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. But not only this, we see here that only God can bless us. We've already referred to that. We speak of somebody being a blessing to us, and we... We know what we mean by that. They've been kind to us. They've, they've helped us. They've done something out of the way or whatever. But the spiritual blessings that flow from the throne of God only come from heaven. They come from Him. We're seated in the heavenlies. Our position is in Christ. We're joint heirs with Him. And these blessings are our spiritual blessings. Who has blessed us, he says here, with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ. May I just warn you here, beware of any doctrine that tells you you're missing out on something. There's several themes of false teaching 
who tell, tell you that even though you may be saved, you need something else. But I want you to know when the Holy Spirit of God comes in and dwells your body and you become a child of God, you have access to all the spiritual blessings uh, of, of the Lord. You're in Christ. And there's nothing, we're complete in Him. There's nothing a believer is lacking. Now, you may need to grow in faith. You may need to grow in grace. Of course we do. We need to grow in our knowledge of Him. We need to leave the milk of the Word and grow on, go on to the deep things of God and the meat of the Word. But in Christ... And with the Holy Spirit dwelling within us, we have all the spiritual blessings we'll ever have. And uh, they're ours to claim. They're ours to, to appropriate by faith. But beware of a false teaching that tells you you're lacking something. If you are genuinely saved, if you're in Christ, you have all the blessings of every other believer on this, on this planet. Now, I didn't say that you are enjoying them to the degree that you should. Sin will block the enjoyment of the the face of the Lord shining toward us, and uh, the, the, the sin will throw a shadow across our way and make it seem as if the Lord is a million miles away, but that's not how it is, is it? I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. There are reasons why we might not be accessing the, the, the spiritual privileges that we have, but we are complete in Him. Psalm 67, verse 6, And God, even our own God, shall bless us. He has provided all that we will ever need now and for eternity. Our salvation provides all of that. The phrase in Psalm 67, verse 6, our own God. What a, an interesting uh, putting it, a way of putting it. Our own God shall bless us points to the glorious fact that he chose us. It shows ownership. And so we are now his own by his own choosing. Luke 18, verse 7, in that mighty and powerful passage that begins with men ought always to pray and not to faint. And then he gives that story of the importunate widow continually going to the judge to get her uh, settlements. And he says, uh, he speaks in that uh, passage, the Lord speaks of his own elect. Fathers bless their children. And we see that this in the patriarchs blessing their children. We've just been through Genesis and we saw uh, Abraham blessing his children, and, and, and Isaac and, and Jacob blessing his children. And our Lord points this natural tendency of a father to bless his children, and he uses it, uh, interestingly, in the teaching of prayer in Matthew chapter 7, verse 9. He says, Oh, what man is there of you whom if his son asks bread will give him a stone? He appeals to the paternal, providing gracious instinct of a sinful father, a father sinner by being a member of the human race. He said, you know how to provide. He goes on to say, if your son asks for a fish, you don't give him a snake, a serpent. If you then, being evil or sinful by nature, know how to give good gifts unto your children, how much more shall your father, which is in heaven, give good things to them that ask him? Well, that's what Paul is referring to here the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Notice the tense of the verb here in verse 3, who hath, who has blessed us. This dates all the way back. Do you know how far this blessing dates back? It dates back far before prehistory. It dates back before there were suns and moons and stars, before records of time or, or marked, before calendars, and the eternal counsels of the Godhead. 
these spiritual blessings were reserved for us in eternity past, far back before we can even comprehend as human beings. This dates all the way back to the point in time in eternity when he chose us in Christ. That's what he begins to enumerate there in verse 4. It's a settled matter. These blessings are already under the, the royal seal in the courts of heaven. Notice the word blessings. They're plural. Blessings upon blessings upon blessings upon blessings. We enjoy them every day, don't we? This salvation that we're in now we stand, what a blessing it is. It came from God. It could not be purchased. No one else could give it to us. And it was based on his electing love. This blessing of being saved. And in the spiritual, the security of the Lord. How he encamps around about us. Remember Satan telling the Lord about Job, you put a hedge about him. I can't get near him. Oh, praise God for his protecting mercy that you've enjoyed to this very hour. Not to mention all the other provisions. It's, it's a plural blessings. To Abraham in Genesis 22 verse 17, he covenanted, in blessing I will bless thee. What a way of putting it. Its plural form denotes that the highest and the best and the fullest for now and all of eternity. Child of God, your blessings will not diminish as you age and as you enter into the eternal day. They will, with compounded interest on the bank of heaven, continue to draw in compound throughout the endless ages. Does that not thrill you tonight? One of the least, of the last acts of our Savior before he ascended to heaven. Do you know what he did? We often think of the great commission that he gave us, and certainly he did. But in Luke's gospel, in verse, chapter 24, verse 50, before he ascended to heaven, he was, the last thing he did was to bless his people. Now, that was not just those in the audience there. That would be all those who would make up the bride of Christ down to the very last soul that will be converted. Think of Jesus raising his hand and blessing his people before he ascended up on high to begin his high priestly ministry of interceding on our behalf. Again, we notice that these blessings are spiritual in nature. Now, here's where the prosperity theology people, if you want to call it that, I, I don't call something that's false a theology, although it is a way of thinking of God. But there's a very popular false teaching that uh, if with the right amount of faith, and the right amount of formulas, if you were just in the know and know how to finagle with God and know what to say, what hocus-pocus words to say, what things to do, you could connive and get all kinds of things, literal, physical things, to show how blessed and how spiritual you are. Oh, what a travesty of false teaching. And with that kind of theology your garage and your house and your jewelry and your job and all of that would show how good of a Christian you are. Let me ask you, it just doesn't hold water, does it? Never in, in, in history has that been the case. We could give an exception here with the children of Israel and we're going to see that their, their blessing was primarily material on purpose. But to drag that economy and that covenant into the church age and to say that the the evidence of God's blessing of his people is our material things is the farthest thing from the truth. I recall that our Lord had not a place to lay his head. I recall that the Apostle Paul uh, had nothing. and made his living even as an apostle by working and sowing and making tents with his hands. 
some of the finest of God's people down from, the, the, from Calvary to this very hour have had little or none of this world's goods. And if I were to transport you to some of the mission fields I've been to as I've stood in pulpits to preach in Haiti, in Mexico, and in parts of Europe and other places, some of God's choicest, most blessed servants are those who have the least of this world's goods. Oh, what a travesty. Isn't Satan such a conniver to make people think that that is the the sign of God's blessing? Well, we notice that these blessings are spiritual in nature. What does it say? Blessed be the God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings. So it's not material blessings, are they? These things are spiritual in nature. Deuteronomy 28 Verses 1 through 8, we see that in that portion of Scripture does enumerate that the blessings of Israel under the Old Covenant were primarily material and temporal. They inherited a literal land that they would live in, the land of Canaan. We don't have a literal land. God's children are spread all over the globe. They were going to live in specific cities and houses they did not build. They were going to be given to them by the Lord. Their crops, their vineyards, their... uh, uh, all those things would be a sign as long as they obeyed the Lord that he, he wanted Israel to be shown on earth as the head and not the tail and that his people were set apart under the old covenant. Now, it is a, a, a travesty, a misinterpretation of the scripture to bring that into the new covenant of grace and say that is to be the sign of God's people when the apostle and every example th- throughout the New Testament is these are spiritual blessings. The unsaved, while they enjoy certain blessings which we enjoy today as God's people, the provision of sun, the rain, the gravity on earth that kept us from flying out into eternity, uh, the earth yielding its fruit, they enjoyed all those things and countless other things, but they did not enjoy the spiritual blessings that God's saved children enjoy today. Notice that these spiritual blessings are upon us or upon all the saved. These are particular blessings for a particular people. What, is he, what he does for one of us, he does for all. So that not the least one has he chosen will ever fall. Now, that doesn't mean that all of us will exactly have the same IQ level or the same opportunities. But the spiritual blessings of salvation, the least saint, the feeblest saint is just as saved as the Apostle Paul was saved. will enjoy the same heaven and the same eternity that Paul will. And in this earth, the feeblest, most wayward saint is eternally kept just like the, 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 most, the strongest believer on earth. And the feeblest saint, the struggling saint, has a hedge of God around him and has the, uh, the uh, ability and the, the privilege of repenting and having the Lord's forgiveness and cleansing, and all those spiritual blessings, the avenue of prayer that all other believers have. Don't let someone rob you in thinking that you don't have access and that you can't make your request before the throne of grace. Come before the throne. Romans 8, verse 30 says, Whom he did predestinate, them he also called. He's speaking of all those he chose. He calls all of them. That's the effectual call. And whom he called, them he also justified. He clears all of them. All the saved are cleared from all blame, are they not? Is salvation not equal across the board? 
the thief that was saved just a few moments before he went into eternity is just as saved in eternity as the Apostle Paul or Peter or John or anyone else. Whom he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. He cleared from all blame. And them he also will glorify. We are now justified. We are being sanctified. And he will glorify us. Every believer will have those spiritual blessings. Praise his holy name. In verse 32 of Romans 8, he asks incredulously, what shall we say then to these things? He lists a whole list of things uh, that, that would, would normally f- cause us to fear and be separated from God. If God be for us, who can be against us? If the whole world got up this morning and cast a ballot that voted you out and said you were the worst person that ever lived and that they could not stand the way you look and despise your breathing on earth, it wouldn't change one bit if everyone on earth was against us. Do you know why? Because God is for us. That's a great encouragement in time of persecution. Which, by the way, Americans who've been so luxuriously carried to to skies on heavenly beds, flowery beds of ease, we're seeing it, aren't we? You're seeing it. You watch the news. You're seeing believers stand for what they believe in and be put in jail. It's just the, the surface. Just the surface. We're not going to be carried to heaven on flowery beds of ease. If the whole world is against us, if God is for us, what, what does it matter who's against us? He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? What all things? The spiritual blessings that we've just enumerated here. Yes, our blessings are spiritual, and we praise God for it, because the material blessings, that Rolls Royce will some one day wind up on the trash heap if you got one. If you could connive and so-called cause one to appear because of your spiritual prosperity, it will wear out one day. And that mansion will corrode. And you'll use up uh, those material blessings. And they can be stolen. Do you know that the spiritual blessings, moths can't eat up and rust can't corrupt and thieves can't break through and steal? Because they're in the heavenlies. They flow from the bank of heaven. You can't break into heaven. You can't get to those things. You can't rob my spiritual blessings. They have my name on them. They have the royal seal of the eternal God of the ages on them. You can't touch the spiritual blessings, but if you as a child of God will share them just as richly as I do. Oh, this is holy ground that we're on tonight. Our citizenship, you may be an American citizen. What of it? I'm a citizen of the city of heaven, a city four square. Do you have a city like that? A country that will never end, whose king is the eternal God of the ages. Hebrews 3 verse 1 says that we are partakers of the heavenly calling. 1 Peter 1 verse 4 says that they are reserved in heaven for us. These blessings, while we enjoy them today, we can't really fully see them in all their fullness because they'll be unveiled to us when we get to heaven. Notice these spiritual blessings are in Christ. They're not in a church. They're not in a religion. They're in Christ because of this mystical, legal, literal union that we have with our Savior. Chapter 2, verse 13 of this book tells us that we were far off. Did you know that's where you were when he found you in saving grace? Far off. But now we are near. 
made nigh by the blood of Christ. Colossians 2 verse 10 to those those Gnostics who say you need some some mystical hocus pocus, some uh, thing that you have not heard. You need to get to know them so you can know like Scientology and those kind of, it's just Gnosticism reconvened. Paul says you're complete in him, period. That's all you need to know. I'm complete. If something is complete, it doesn't need anything else added to it, does it? A.W. Pink says, it is of the Father that we are in Christ. But though all of our blessings are in him, we can only live in the power and enjoyment of them as faith looks away from self and all of its concerns and is occupied entirely with him. Are you down at the dumps tonight? Are you down in the mire, in the muck of this world? Look away to Jesus Christ. Seated at the right hand of God the Father. There you'll see nail-pierced hands and a ribbon brow that was suffered on your behalf, intervening, interceding, making your request known before the Father. Thanks be to God for this unspeakable gift. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who hath blessed us with a few spiritual blessings what it says who has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ may the spirit of God teach us these things and, and help us as we pray